Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I didn't tell hardly anybody what we were dealing with because I was ashamed. I felt like a failure as a father and I didn't feel like we deserved any help. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Kolb. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Hello, everyone. Before we start with today's episode, I want to thank each and every one of you. We are celebrating 500,000 downloads of All the Wiser. I've never really liked the word downloads. For me, I like to envision it as every time someone popped in their earbuds or turned up the volume in their car to listen to one of our incredible guests share their life story. I want to thank you for helping us to reach this milestone. If you don't follow us already on Instagram, you can find us at All The Wiser Podcast and check out the post with our virtual dance party to celebrate. Now on to today's interview with Gary Mendel. Gary is a father, a warrior, and someone who I believe will be at the forefront of changing addiction in our country. Gary and his family lived a charmed life on the East Coast until his son, Brian, became addicted to drugs. Gary lived in his own pain as he loved and supported his young son through wilderness programs, countless rehab facilities, and halfway houses. His usage escalated over the years, including everything from alcohol to hard drugs, Xanax, and opioids. Gary explains with brave honesty what it is like to watch your child live with addiction as they fight for their life. He also brings Brian to life and shares sentimental stories of his kind heart and compassion in the world. Sadly, under the weight of deep shame and secrecy, Brian took his life. Today, Gary has dedicated his life to Brian's legacy. He has incredible insight on how we can help to prevent our own kids from a future of addiction and the proven ways to successfully treat those who are already suffering. He also politely interrupts me for a correction in my language. I will leave it a mystery and you can listen and I promise I will never use that word again. Here's today's interview with father and changemaker, Gary Mendel. Gary, welcome to All The Wiser. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I normally like to start by having our guests introduce themselves. How would you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Gary Mendel. 
and I am the founder and CEO of Shatterproof. I also usually like to begin by asking our guest about the backdrop of their childhood. But for the conversation I'm having with you today, I want to change that question and ask about Brian's childhood, your remarkable son who we're going to talk about today. So what was his childhood like? Or I guess more importantly, who, who was he as a child? Thank you for asking. Yeah, when Brian was born, he was um, every father's dream. As a toddler, he was always smiling, always hugging me, my little companion. He used to play in his room with his little trucks forever. He used to run around the backyard chasing butterflies. And he was just a pleasure, always inquisitive, always smiling, always happy. Thank you for painting the picture of of who he was is a young boy that's that's very clear to me. I'm curious at what point he begins to change. I think preteen and teenage is such a vulnerable and difficult time for all of us. So when do you begin to see a change in Brian and why, if you know the why? Sure. You know, in our society, many kids try alcohol or pot or weed you know, and, and right around there, at the time they're starting high school, 13, 14 years old. And Brian was like most and did the same thing. You know, seven or eight of our kids, the kids in our neighborhood, went in the backyard one day, hid in the woods and tried beer and weed. And statistically, out of every 10 who do that, two or three say, yuck, this tasted horrible or just didn't feel right. I don't want to do it again. And Six or seven say, and that felt pretty good. I'll try it again, you know, a month from now. And one or two, something connects with them. Either it soothes some type of anxiety they had or connects in a certain way where they feel an attraction to try that drug or alcohol a day later or two days later. And they start to become addicted. And that was Brian's case. That was Brian's case when he was 14 years old, just before entering high school. And to get more insight into who he was, who would you say Brian was at this time on the inside versus the outside, how he's presenting himself, if you will, in the world? That's such a great question, which I've never been asked before. such a good question. On the outside, he was, as I described him growing up, always smiling, always inquisitive, empathetic, always wanted to know about others. That's was Brian on the outside. On the inside, he was clearly empathetic. He clearly cared about others. But I think the smiling was hiding some anxiety. When I thought about the intention today, really important to me that we get the fabric of who Brian was. And you talked about compassion, and I just want you to share the story about Yankee Stadium that I read because I think it's a wonderful anecdote of sort of the softness that lived within him. We're at a Yankee game, and we're waiting in line to get into the stadium. And I'm talking to Brian. He's at my side. And um, all of a sudden, I look to my left, and he's gone. And I look on the other side of the parking lot, and there's a fence. And he literally had crawled underneath the fence to give a homeless person 
a quarter. That's who Brian was. The always feeling for others. You know, one story I don't tell that often just because it doesn't come up was after he passed away. The next day, I get a call from his sober coach. And he told me the last time when he was with Brian, which had been a month earlier because he had been called out of the country to go help someone else. The last time he was with Brian, they had lunch. And they walked out of the restaurant. And Brian was handing $5 bills to people on the street who were homeless. And Brian didn't have a lot of money. That was his food money. That was Brian. Thank you for sharing both those stories because I do think they are a testament to his character. And I think, you know, there's another piece of this. I, I want to talk about shame and secrecy, which is something we actually have talked about on this podcast a fair amount, both with mental health and addiction. But within your community, there was another family, which I believe is blocks away from you. Yes. And their son is struggling as well. And there's pain within those walls. Explain the juxtaposition of the two homes and how the community perceives the illness and shows up for those family, one being yours. Sure. Well, one young man, Mikey, who was a year older than Brian, and both boys were in high school. Mikey was diagnosed with cancer. You know, as you or anyone would expect, his family was devastated. However, they were easily able to access the highest quality medical care, Medicare that we would all receive for any disease that's based on science, where doctors are taught in medical school how to treat something. Mikey's parents, they told all their friends about what Mikey was dealing with, as you'd expect. And our entire town rallied behind Mikey and his family. Parents came to their home with cooked meals. Parents drove carpools to help Mikey's parents so they wouldn't have to do it. And I remember like it was yesterday, the kids in our elementary school held bake sales on the weekends to raise money for Mikey and his new charity. And the whole time Mikey was sick, he received all the love and compassion that anyone with a difficult disease deserves. Well, literally just two streets away, my son Brian was also struggling with a disease. But for Brian and our family, it was so different. We also looked for medical care for our son, like Mikey's parents had. But unlike Mikey's parents, we couldn't find any medical care that was based on science. We literally just struggled in isolation from word of mouth to word of mouth. We couldn't find treatment that was based on science. And I have financial resources. What about the families that don't? It's even harder. Unlike Mikey's parents, I didn't tell hardly anybody what we were dealing with because I was ashamed. I felt like a failure as a father and I didn't feel like we deserved any help. And as a result, our community didn't rally behind us. Not that they wouldn't have anyways if I had told anybody. There were no cooked meals. There were no carpools. But when I think back at those times, those years, even worse is when Mikey came home to visit from treatment he saw bake sales on the weekends to raise money for him and his charity. And when Brian came home from treatment, he didn't see bake sales. He got silence. And that is to think about the opposite, 
of had your home been flooded with love and support, had when Brian came home fighting to cure his disease, he passed bake sales or signs or, you know, the things that communities do, ribbons, you know, had you grieving parents, you wonder, and I imagine you wonder how that can impact and shape an outcome. Absolutely. Think about you're a teenager. You're 16 or 17 years old and you have a chronic illness that everyone is viewing as you as the bad person. And you're trying to deal with it. Teenagers are just dealing with all kinds of things at that age. And you're struggling with, you have this urge to use this drug, this craving, and you know it's wrong. And everyone is telling you it's wrong. And you're looked at as the bad kid. And so you're hiding it. And the more you hide it, the more nervous you get about it, the more the cravings get worse. And you're not receiving medical care. And then you're shipped off to a treatment program that is probably not following science-based protocols because our treatment system has mostly been outside of the healthcare system without any regulation or standard of care. And I do think the cycle is self-fulfilling in a sense, I would imagine, because shame and secrecy induce anxiety. When you experience in your own head or what the world is affirming that you are in fact a moral failure or you're flawed as a character, none of that fosters a healthy path forward. So I do want you to talk about the shame that he felt and the shame that your family felt and the impact that you think that had and that has on other people suffering from the same disease right now? Well, where that now begins to translate is the person addicted feels that shame and they start to believe it. They start to feel it and they start to internalize it and think, I'm not worthy. Yeah, the low self-esteem, the isolation, everything that would come with that. Yeah. As his illness progresses, if you can share what his addiction looked like, what was he using, how frequently, and it's two separate questions because I'm also interested in how parents experience watching that, watching a child that is that sick and watching them use. So can you paint a picture of what that looked like for you and where he was with his usage? Sure. The answer is, is it evolved over time? And... The first time this became a problem was when Brian was in high school at 17. We got a call from his guidance counselor that Brian was caught in the restroom using drugs and he needed to leave. He, needed, he was going to be expelled. And they introduced me to a, the school psychologist and he recommended that we send Brian to a um, nature program, which we did. We took that advice and we sent him to a, to a nature program out in Utah. Explain that for for those who don't know. It's very right, immersive and intensive. Yeah, it's basically what a nature program is. You're out in the wilderness. It's a wilderness program is what it's called. I'm sorry. They sent him out to a wilderness program. He was there for, they go for four to eight weeks. Brian was there for six weeks. And you're out in the wilderness with a therapist with about a dozen other young adults. and. They're out in nature. Obviously, you're not using drugs because it's not available out there, but you're also free of all the distractions of life. They're getting the person to evaluate 
what they were doing wrong and how they can make their life better. You know, the research shows, which I was unaware of the research until after Brian passed away, there's no research that shows wilderness programs work. Having said that for Brian, it actually, I think it did help him because he was a very outdoorsy kid. And I think that it actually was a positive experience for him. But the real kicker was at the end, they recommended that he doesn't come home, that he goes to a therapeutic boarding school. So they recommended he go there for two years. And Brian absolutely didn't want to go, but we forced him. And he went. But Brian, he was only there like six months. And we had a weekly call and he'd call me and he'd say, Dad, this place is not good. Kids are getting beat up. There's other stuff going on. It's not a great place. So who am I going to believe? Am I going to believe my son or who had an issue of using drugs? Or, or am I going to believe the treatment program? I believe the treatment program and I made him stay. Well, after he was there a year, he came home for his brother's bar mitzvah. And when he came home, he just said again, he started to tell me more. And I'm like, Brian, you got to go back. He went back. And one day later, he ran away from the treatment program, from the boarding school. He called me like an hour after he left. And he said, Dad, I'm on a pay phone. I don't want to run away. I want to come home. I want to finish my senior year in high school at home with you and mom. This place is not good. Long story short, I sent him a, um, a bus ticket and he came home. Six months later, the place had a class action lawsuit against, against them from numerous parents and they were closed down. He was right. But what made even worse, he was exposed to so many kids there that were using drugs at the treatment program and his use elevated. It was so bad for him. That was such a bad recommendation that we got, that we followed. And so his, now he moved from pot and weed and alcohol to harder drugs. And that's when he got exposed to opioids as well as um, Xanax. And Xanax turned into, when he went to another treatment program, they actually prescribed him Xanax and he became addicted to Xanax. That led to even more use of opioids, and it just kept, it just got worse and worse throughout the years. Well, I'm sorry. I imagine for you as a father and a parent, the realization of the truth of the boarding school and in good faith and good heart having him stay, that's just, I'm a parent, and I, I guess I would imagine that's an extra layer for you. So I'm sorry that that happened to you. Thank you. So at what point is his usage at its height? How old is he? Where is he? Sure. You know, for Brian, it was heavy use, going to a treatment program, stopping, getting out of the treatment program, and relapsing. Relapsing, getting into heavy use, me convincing him to go to treatment, him going to treatment, stopping, doing really well in treatment every time he did, getting out of treatment, going into a halfway house, and relapsing again. You know, I now know that none of the treatment programs were following evidence-based protocols that are based on what the research has shown to work. I didn't know that at the time, but I now have read all the research and I know it. There was a conversation, as you said, he he had been, what was it, a year plus clean and sober, doing really well? 
Yes, 13 months. But I wouldn't use those words clean and sober. Clean means if you're not clean, you're dirty. So I would try to refrain, if you, if you don't mind, from that word. He's always clean. <laughs> he wasn't dirty when he was relapsing. So I'm going to leave that in because I believe <laughs> in the power of language. And I think that is a shift in language that I commit to making right now. And I hope every listener does, because that is a fabulous point. He was never Thank dirty. You. Correct. So he's in this healthy place with his disease for managing it for 13 months. Right. And you have a conversation with him. I believe it was on the porch at your home. What was that conversation? You know, it started out with his favorite topic, which is uh, the New York Giants and Eli Manning. That was his, his obsession. But then it turned to his recovery. And he looked at me and he said, Dad, over a hundred years ago, they used to burn women on the stakes in Massachusetts because they thought they were witches. And then they learned they weren't. And they stopped. Someday, people will realize, I wish people would realize, I'm not a bad person. I have a difficult disease and I'm trying my absolute hardest. And Dad, I promise you, I'm going to do whatever I can to beat this. That was the last conversation you had with Brian at your home. What happened next? Uh, he flew back to California where he was in living in a halfway house and without patient treatment. And for the next four months, he was continuing being abstinent, not using drugs and continuing with his treatment, you know, a couple times a week in the outpatient program, living in a halfway house. And I flew out to see him three months after he had visited us at home to celebrate his one year of being substance-free. And, you know, we had a nice weekend together, celebrated him being substance-free, but I could tell he was a little off, a little depressed, but I wasn't able to create the conversation going, so I really understood it. And then I flew home. And then five weeks later after... I flew back to the East Coast. I was woken up in the middle of the night one night and by my cell phone ringing. And when I picked it up, I was told that my son had just died. He was 25 years old and he hadn't used a substance in 13 months. And equally tragic, I was told that it wasn't just addiction that took his life, that he had taken his own life. It was suicide. When I got his laptop back, the history on his laptop showed that he had woken up that morning and he had begun to research suicide notes. And then he wrote a note of his own, lit a candle, and took his own life. And the note that he wrote was so telling. It was just a paragraph to each of us telling us how much he loved us but also telling us how the treatment system, everywhere he, everywhere he was treated, they were telling him something different. And they weren't really understanding him. And that he just wanted to get back to normal and be viewed as normal. And he didn't see it happening. And he didn't want to, he just felt so bad about what he had put us through. and didn't want any of us to suffer anymore. 
What are, for you and, and your wife and your family, what are the weeks and what is the wake of that loss? You know, I miss him all the time, every day. But what hurts most is knowing that he didn't have to die. That all this research existed on how to prevent our youth from ever using drugs and ever becoming addicted. And all this research exists on how to treat people while they're going through treatment with, with methods that have proven to significantly improve outcomes. Yet all this information is sitting in peer-reviewed medical journals and hardly any of it is being implemented. So that destroys me. What are the things that could have and would have saved Brian's life? Sure. Let's talk preventatively. I learned after Brian's death that age of first use is really important. Is that someone who tries drugs or alcohol at age 21 for the first time has a 4% chance of becoming addicted. If they try drugs or alcohol between 19 and 21, it's 7%. They try drugs or alcohol between 17 and 19, it goes to 13%. 15 to 17, it goes to 20%. My point being that if I had known that if I could have delayed his first use from age 14 to age 16 or 17, the chances of him becoming addicted would have been significantly lower. That's number one. Two, preventatively, I didn't know that someone who had mild anxiety or had ADD, their probabilities are way higher than someone who doesn't. And if I had known that as a father, I would have been much more focused on ensuring that he didn't ever use drugs or alcohol to even a year or two later than that, than that, maybe even 19 or 20. Obviously, at some point, they're going to use. But I would have been much more focused on it. So that's preventatively. Treatment, I now know that the treatment in, our, in the system in the United States is way behind the times. And it's not about what the, the, the occasional articles we read about, you know, dishonest treatment providers. Brian went to eight different treatment programs. I strongly believe that six of the eight, they were wonderful people doing what they thought was right. They weren't dishonest. They were good people working in those treatment programs. But they didn't know the science. The science has not been taught in medical schools. It has not been taught in psychiatry. It has not been taught in therapeutic training. It has not been taught. And so people are going with what they learned 20 years ago. Again, I'm speaking generally speaking. Of course, there's, there's exceptions to it. And I didn't know that. At one treatment program, he was in residential for 90 days, which is what they recommended. He did well. And then they recommended they go to an affiliated halfway house. He was in the ha affiliated halfway house for two weeks and he was caught with a Vicodin pill in his pocket. So instead of saying, okay, we can't keep him here because that's against the rules, let's transition Brian to a higher level of care because obviously 
the halfway house environment is not working for him, they put him on the street. They called his mother and I and say, Brian broke the rules. He's out on the street. You should wire money. Otherwise, he's going to be homeless. Can you imagine that being done for someone with diabetes? They have a relapse and they kick him out of the hospital? No. At another treatment program, Brian called me and he said, Dad, they're making me use my toothbrush to scrub toilets to build my character. Can you imagine them doing that for some other disease? And that both these treatment programs, they are one of the six that I just mentioned that were good people. These weren't people that were dishonest. They thought they were doing the right thing. Yeah, there's a lapse in the, in the science that this is character building and this is helping. This all led to, as, as you said, the legacy of Brian is, I imagine, shows up in lots of places in the world, but certainly one is in Shatterproof, which you created. And I appreciate your transparency about your access to medical care in spite of it not <laughs> being the care that was needed uh, with the research and support behind it but that you do have access to that and that, that you were privileged to financially be able to provide that for your son. But speaking of that, you were very successful in the world, in the business world, and you walked away from that and said, I'm going to commit my life's work to creating change around addiction and moving the needle forward in the right direction. So, I, first of all, you know, commend you deeply for that, but I know you have some ambitious goals and I've heard you talk about changing our country's consciousness when it comes to addiction. And I'm curious, what does that mean? What does that mean to you? It's a great question. We can change the treatment system in the United States. We can embed within our healthcare system the protocols that science has proven to improve outcomes. We can educate our communities and our families about how to raise their families in a way that is most likely to prevent many of our loved ones from using drugs or alcohol and ever becoming addicted. But all of that is only half the way. The other half of the way is for our society to understand that this is not bad people doing bad things. This is no different than someone developing a chronic illness. And most important, that this is a very treatable disease when it's treated the right way. It is documented that those treated with the protocols that I've mentioned that have been proven to improve outcomes, their probability of being successfully treated and living a full and fulfilling life is no different than someone being treated for diabetes, heart disease, or asthma. No different. And we have to educate the public that it's not just a chronic illness, not, but it's also a treatable chronic illness. And yes, if someone is being properly treated, you can live next door to them. You can work with them with the right assumption that they're getting treatment that's based on science. You said something beautiful about one line, a simple but incredibly poignant line in the serenity prayer, and this very clear dream of having every Congress member read that one line. Can you share with me that line? Sure. 
I think what you're referring to is the first line of the serenity prayer says, give me the serenity to accept what I cannot change. But the second line, the second line is equally important. The courage to be able to change the things that we can. Anybody who's had a loss like I have can't help but constantly thinking about things they may have done differently, decisions you might have made differently, conversations you might have had differently, or moments in time that may, may have made the difference between the life or death of a family member. But as I struggle with that, I've also come to realize that it could be a tribute to a life that has been lost to change the things that we can. And all the research exists to significantly reduce the number of our loved ones who ever become addicted. And for those who are afflicted with this disease, to significantly improve their outcome in treatment. So many of them can live, most of them can live full and fulfilling lives. And my comment to Congress was, I'm not asking for $20 billion to go spend two decades for a vaccine. I am asking for to change some public policies that doesn't cost any money at all to ensure that those who are being treated are being treated the right way based on science versus the wrong way, which is not only not going to cost a penny, it's going to save billions of dollars in healthcare cost and hundreds of thousands of lives. What do you miss most about Brian? I love speaking to you. <laughs> you were asking the best questions. Um, I miss... I miss, I, I miss his... His smile, but also his... Also... His, his friendship, his love... I mean, to the last years of his life, every phone call, the first thing, he didn't want to talk about himself. Dad, are you eating enough tomatoes? Are you eating enough fruit? Dad, why are you working so hard? Go play more golf. Brian cared about others. He was not only my son, but my best friend. How does he show up in the world for you today? And today, he's in my heart. He inspires me every day to help others because that's how he lived. After he passed away, the day after, the phone was off the hook, people calling me. A woman called me and said, Brian shouldn't have died. I should have died. In my worst night, when I was so depressed, Brian stayed up with me all night long to help me. Not only did he help me, I just enrolled to get a master's in psychology because Brian gave me the confidence to do that. That's how he, he lives, not just within me, but in so many others. Well, Gary, thank you for this conversation and bringing Brian to life for me and for our audience. I, I think it's going to make a big impact in all who listen. And I'll tell you, you talked about his connection to nature and wilderness. I found or discovered you and Brian. I was on a hike with a dear friend who has literally traveled the world at dozens and dozens of conferences hearing really interesting people speak about important things. 
And I said, if there's one person I should have on All the Wiser who really stuck with you, who should it be? And she said, I'll send you the link, and his name is Gary. (laughs) Wow. Wow. So um, I'm grateful that at that moment you came to mind and that we had this conversation. So thank you again. Thank you. And I mean this. This has been the best interview I've ever had in, in eight years. You have gotten to all the right questions. Thank you. Well, I will accept that and be really grateful for it. Now you're giving me confidence. So <laughs> you're paying it forward. I am. So we end with something called rapid fire, which is just sort of a, a fun way to end and get to know you a little bit better. So I'm going to start the sentence or the question and you finish with whatever comes to mind. Sure. Favorite city. Huh. Do I even have a favorite city? Um, <laughs> I like nature. I'm kind of like Brian. I don't like cities. Um, I would say Boston. I love the um, colonial aspect to it. Best and worst thing about quarantine? The best is I've transitioned from typical phone calls to Zoom calls where I can see people's faces, which I'm really enjoying. The worst is like all of us, not having that wonderful interaction with people face-to-face. Number one item on your bucket list? Number one item on my bucket list is to end the stigma of addiction. The thing I value most in the world? Being a good father and a good husband. Morning ritual? Walking my dog Rocky with my wife. Best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh boy. Um, To live a meaningful life. Thank you, Gary. We are going to link to Shatterproof and hopefully as many resources as you can share in the show notes. So everybody check that out. And I know this interview took a while for us to nail down and it was absolutely worth the wait. So thank you. Likewise. Thank you. And I'm sorry it took so long. Thank you so much. (laughs) Today's interview with Gary is in honor of his son, Brian, and supports the work of Shatterproof. Shatterproof is a national nonprofit dedicated to reversing the addiction crisis in America. Please check out the link in our show notes. It is shatterproof.org. There is tons of incredible information about how we can prevent addiction within our own homes and communities and help anyone we know who may already be suffering. In addition to these resources, you will learn more about their work to end the stigma that keeps people in the shadows and ultimately takes lives. Thank you for making the time to listen to my conversation with Gary and helping us reach our goal of 500,000 downloads of All the Wiser. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read our show notes, or get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at All the Wiser Podcast. Send us a note. We would love to hear from you. And as always, thanks for listening. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.